You guys, it's fun drive time again at the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. Our team is growing and getting better all the time. We just published Lori Calhoun's great new book, Questioning the COVID Company Line, Critical Thinking in Hysterical Times, a great collection of essays that she wrote for the Institute. And we've got five more books in the works coming soon, not including the one I'm working on now, Provoked, How America Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine. The great Ted's, Snyder and Carpenter, now write for us. And we've just brought on our new outreach director, Quinn Triggs, to help us all get our stuff out there where people can see it. We run a tight ship here. Your money goes to pay our writers and podcasters to keep doing their work. Simple as that. But we need some. Especially you incredibly wealthy people out there listening. Help me pay my guys so we can continue to set the standard for libertarian thought for the next generation. And write it off on your taxes. That's libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And thanks. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Show. All right, you guys, introducing once again Lyle Goldstein from Defense Priorities, and he's also a visiting professor at Brown University now and uh, formerly was at the Naval War College. Uh, welcome back to the show. How you doing, Lyle? Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here again. Uh, very happy to have you on the show. And um, Okay, so the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a big, important, militarist-type think tank, I guess they count as like a click to the right of the Council on Foreign Relations or something like that, maybe, uh, but essentially as... Um, credentials or whatever the same sort of social status as the CFR or some of the bigger think tanks, right? Um, and they have this thing is called the first battle of the next war, war gaming, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And you've said that of all the different war games and scenarios and simulations that have been held, you thought this was the most serious and, and I guess the, the most well done and yet still revealed glaring flaws in the game itself but also predicted the almost worst case outcome for everyone involved huh that's right scott i mean i look um i think we should uh, all of us who care about u.s china relations and who want to prevent you know a repeat or or even something much much worse even than ukraine in the taiwan context need to i think take a very close look at this game yeah in terms of in terms of the fidelity the effort um uh the methodologies employed uh th this is a i i call it the most um serious look at what a taiwan scenario uh, how it could unfold and um you know i should say at the outset i i do give the authors of this effort and csis uh, quite a bit of credit here for um, really pushing the boundaries and and taking our understanding a lot further. But uh, like I said, I, I'm quite critical uh, because although they have exposed some 
critical realities such as, you know, let me underline this uh, two or three times, that they, they show that if this war is fought, that the costs uh, to the United States uh, are likely enormous. Uh, you know, hundreds of aircraft, dozens of ships, uh, tens of thousands of uh, servicemen killed, potentially. Um, uh, so, you know, they have revealed, I think, what, what Americans have not wanted to think about, which is that, that this could be, um, you know, look a lot more like World War II. Uh, World War One, you know, in the scale of destruction. So, um, but I, I hope we can get more into the details here because actually, um, you know, that's what they evaluate as sort of likely. But when you look at the fine print, you see that um, actually even their uh, estimates of what could happen, that is the worst case. And, and after all, we should keep the worst case in mind when we take these kind of risks. You know, now that is that that is really breathtaking and uh, horrifying honestly yeah well you know as we've talked about over the years when most of these and i don't know the specifics of this one i'm writing a book about russia right now so i did not read the whole report but um i have read many of these types of things over the years and it's obvious that it doesn't make any sense for a report writer to say well, what would happen is they'd nuke us on the second day and we'd all die in the Armageddon end of the world scenario. And then everybody left in the global south would starve a nuclear winter and Jesus may or may not come back, but it would be the apocalypse. They, You can't sell a study like that. So instead you sell a study that says, well, we'll fight China for four weeks. And then it'll be basically a stalemate and no one will nuke each other's major cities because we say so. And you can get $30,000 or maybe 300000 for one of those. And so they talk and you hear this all the time, especially, you know, like, say, right wing AM radio culture or, you know, the more popular Republican leaning type media. They're like, come on, man, let's take on China over Taiwan. As though that doesn't mean losing Denver and losing Houston and losing New York City, maybe. Yeah, that's exactly right, Scott. And I think I think you laid it out just right is that, um, you know, again, when you look at the fine print of this study uh, and the authors are, you know, I, again, I give them some credit. They're pretty honest about um you know, clear that they're sort of putting aside all the nuclear issues. Um, and uh, and I hope we, you know, let's talk in more detail about that because uh, it is crucial. Um, and then another note, again, here at the outset, when we're talking about the sort of big sort of problems, if you will, with the game is that, it, note that the, the title of this game is First Battle. And, you know, I think, again, we want to underline that two or three times. So when we're talking about losses that amount to whether it's, you know, 200 aircraft in the best case or, you know, maybe 800 U.S. aircraft, think about that. That's a big chunk of our Air Force. Uh, if we lose 800 aircraft in the worst case, um, that is only in the first few weeks, in the first battle. OK, so this is not a model of the war. And really, there is not really a, um, a theory even presented in this game of how the war actually ends. And by the way, uh, a very uh, skilled China expert, uh, ex-CIA, Lonnie Henley, stood up at the rollout of this game and asked this question. You know, uh, By the way, you fought this battle, but you haven't ended the war. So when we consider these horrifying losses, this is just in the first few weeks. OK, and as you said, the nuclear question 
uh, is there. And, you know, uh, they do kind of occasionally uh, bring up the idea that, wow, you know, even though we took nuclear issues off the table in the game, players still seem very concerned about escalation. Gosh, I wonder why. Uh, if we look at the Ukraine crisis, we see the the Biden administration has been pretty skittish about escalation, as they should be. I believe they should be much more skittish, more cautious. So I believe we'd see similar behavior here. China is building up its nuclear forces. Uh, I'm happy to talk more about nuclear escalation dangers. But generally here, um, the, the authors of this report, at the very end, they say, well, um, Nobody really knows what would happen. This has never happened before. We've never had a, a major war break out between two nuclear powers. So we have no idea how it would unfold. And that's all they say about it. I mean, more or less uh, yeah. uh, in, in the last uh, few pages of the report. Um, so, you know, that should be incredibly troubling. Right. Uh, it, and, and Scott, going back to what you said originally, you can't sell a report that says we're going to blow up the world with this uh, war. So th nobody's going to write a report like that. So in a way, they had to do it this way. Uh, and uh, it's not the truth. Right. Yeah. The whole thing. I mean, to think about and I'm sorry, because it's the politics of it. And I'll just leave it aside. But it's got to be mentioned that we're talking about a semi autonomous renegade province of some foreign nation on literally the other side of the planet like when they say dig a hole all the way to china because that's how far away it is from here um and that's a, yeah and i'm glad you raised that point too because it's really the first thing you should think about when you try to understand the taiwan issue and i really welcome readers to um uh, get educated as they can on this um uh, on on the history of Taiwan, for example, but yeah, start with a map, and 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 you know they say this in the war game, and they put it uh, pretty starkly. They say, you know, gosh, uh, Taiwan is 160 kilometers from mainland China, and it's 11,000 kilometers from San Diego. You know, a really large U.S. base, uh, a Navy base. Um, I guess we have a base closer, 8,000 kilometers in Hawaii, but. Really, folks, um, you know, once you just grapple with that logic and look over the geography a little better, you realize just uh, how stunningly the cards are are up against us. You know, so, you know, I believe, uh, in effect, we're asking our service people, our uh, men and women in uniform to do the impossible, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to fight a war on the on the doorstep of another superpower. And that is really ill-advised, uh, even if maybe, you know, at some level, there is a best case scenario where where somehow we escape, you know, both nuclear destruction and our forces are not completely destroyed. But, you know, to me, that seems like uh, the kind of best casing that we should avoid in our in serious uh, national security planning. Yeah. Well, look, and it's already incredibly risky. I think you and I probably would agree that we're completely against it. But in Ukraine, they won't dare go beyond having deniable forces there. We know they have some special operations forces and some CIA special activity center type guys running around. But they they swear they're not, you know, leading missions and nothing like engaging in full scale war as though Ukraine is a member of a uh, the NATO alliance or any other alliance with the United States. and But here we're willing to treat Taiwan in a way that we're, thank goodness, not willing to treat Ukraine for some reason. Yeah, and the similarities are really um, a very, um, I think, uh, 
appropriate to to discuss. I mean, you know, let's face it, uh, these are uh, both, um, well, countries, entities, whatever your wayward provinces, however you want to look at it, but they are, you know, uh, right on the doorstep of these other uh, major powers. Uh, And therefore, the risks um, are huge. In both cases, there are very deep kind of identity issues. Uh, You're well acquainted with, you know, just how close Ukrainian and uh, Russian culture and history, how how closely they're intertwined. Of course, it's exactly uh, really it's very similar, very parallel with uh, Taiwan uh, and China. but there, you know, there are also some huge differences here, you know, not least Taiwan is an island. Taiwan is much, much smaller than Ukraine. Taiwan is, you know, arguably Taiwan is just the Russians underestimated Ukraine, the, you know, and they try to take over a country the size of France with a rather small army. Uh, so sure, the Russians went in with, with uh, you know, poor planning, poor assumptions, underestimated their opponent. China will not make that mistake. Moreover, China is much, much more powerful, as we know, uh, than Russia in kind of comprehensive power, uh, unquestionably, in everything except nuclear forces. Um, you know, China is, what do you want to say, four to five times the strength, uh, certainly, um, you know, from a military uh, power point of view. So so it, we're talking about a smaller area uh, and China's much larger military. And moreover, you know, I think if you if you if you were to do a survey of Russian officer corps, you know, in the last uh, 10 years or something and ask them, how likely is a war between Russia and Ukraine? They would have laughed at you and said, un- very unlikely. You know, in other words, they weren't, although, you know, you had this small kind of border conflict in Donbass, I don't think the Russian army um, was really preparing in earnest for this day. I think this was a surprise to everybody. And as has been revealed, the Russian soldiers outside Kiev, you know, really had to scratch their head like, what, what are we doing here exactly? Uh, that's my assessment. They, they were almost as surprised as people in, in, in the West. Uh, but that is not the case here with Taiwan. You know, Chinese uh, officers are inculcated uh, with the sense that that unification uh, between Taiwan and mainland is is really the main focus, the main purpose of the PLA is to achieve unification from day one of the time they joined the PLA. So there's a very fundamental difference. And uh, I think that, unfortunately, that's why this is, is fraught with risks, uh, primarily for Taiwan, but also very much for the United States. Um, you know, for China as well, I don't, uh, I'm not sugarcoating this from the Chinese point of view, their losses would probably also be huge. And the risks are, are uh, very severe for China. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what I want to underline here is that this report, uh, as helpful as it is, and again, I really strongly urge people to take a quick look at it, uh, its conclusions. But what I fear is that um, we haven't really understood the full uh, implications of this report. Let me just give you one example here. Um, like I said, in the best case, uh, this report finds that the U.S. in this war loses about 200 aircraft. This is best case, 200 aircraft and, and about a dozen warships. However, there is a worst case here. And in the worst case, uh, the numbers are are something like uh, at one point they say um, the U.S. might uh, they say um, we, we might lose. Uh, let's see, I think four aircraft carriers, 29 uh, destroyers and cruisers, and 15 
nuclear submarines. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, as as uh, somebody who worked for the Navy for 20 years, I can say, you know, that that would be nearly half of our Navy. Uh, and uh, I can't imagine, you know, the loss of life would be, you know, well over 100,000. Uh, th- that is just uh, appalling. And and I have to say, I think there I don't think that is the worst case, actually. I think it could be significantly worse even than that. Uh, so I, I think they underestimate in some ways the um, possible losses to U.S. forces. I can go through the details there, but it, it's, um, you know, a situation where we could lose, you know, a third to a half of our Air Force and Navy. Uh, I think we had better um, think twice, three times, four times and 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 hopefully, in my view, you know, effectively close the door on this and, and choose to uh, use other methods, uh, you know, if we, if we want to put sanctions on China, uh, you know, sure. Uh, other, we have other alternatives to dealing with this. Um, you know, some have suggested, well, we might sort of blockade China. I, I don't know about that. But look, the most rational solution is basically what we've done in Ukraine, which is uh, offer to support Taiwan in ways we can without military force. And then we can also reinforce our allies. We have allies there. Uh, it's reasonable to defend our treaty allies, Philippines and and Japan. So I would expect in the wake of a war over Taiwan that we would, uh, you know, uh, adjust our posture and send more forces to Japan and Philippines. I don't think China has any plans to invade either Japan or Philippines, but we could do that to reassure our allies in the case of a Taiwan scenario. But fighting over Taiwan is, uh, you know, really a bridge too far. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I would hope we have learned lessons from Ukraine. That is, you know, you don't want to stir up this hornet's nest in the backyard of a of an angry uh, great power. And, and again, Russia may be a great power. China is a bona fide superpower. And there's a difference. Well, listen, um, here's an option. We could negotiate and help peacefully reunify China and Taiwan, like in the deal, and then nobody has to fight at all. Well, okay, Scott, I think uh, you you seem to know a lot about Taiwan situation because, right? If you if you study the history, uh, you know that there are political diplomatic solutions to this effort. In fact, you know, I I my hats off to uh, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger for breaking through uh, this Gordian knot. They really did. Uh, they really did change the entire world. They changed the trajectory of U.S.-China relations. And guess what Joe and Lai and Henry Kissinger talked about in their initial conversations in Beijing, uh, you know, what was that, in 1971, before the Nixon visit? They 90% of what they talked about was Taiwan. You know, Kissinger kept saying, well, let's talk about Vietnam, too. And Joe and I kind of, you know, laughed at him and said, no, for us, all we care about is Taiwan. You have to you have to agree agree to these terms and then we will, you know, open diplomatic and have normal relations with you and demilitarize our relationship. And they did, you know, Uh, Yeah, I even saw a piece of paper where they had listed the pros and cons, Kissinger and Nixon. Or yep. the, the things that we care about and the things that they care about. And the things exactly. that they care about, Taiwan was on the list right at the top. And it was 
either at the bottom or not even on the Americans list at the time. It's like, what do they really care about for most anyway? Now, I read this big thing. I know you must know everything in the world about this, but I read a pretty yeah. in-depth thing. And was it the New York Times Magazine about the war over the microchips and how, boy, these are some sophisticated chips, all right, and chip factories. And it seems like if that's really such a big strategic problem, then they shouldn't have developed because it's American corporations at the heart of it all anyway. They shouldn't have developed all that tech to be based in Taiwan in the first place. It's like they're just trying to make a strategic liability out of the place. And then secondly, they ought to get to work moving that crap to Austin. And then how about that? Then we don't have to worry about even if China invades. Who cares? We don't even have microchips at stake anymore at that point. But they don't talk about that at all. They're like, no, we need to have more and more reason to be obligated to Taiwan, not less. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. I think, you know, there's, I mean, honestly, I think the people who advocate for uh, for the U.S. defending Taiwan, and, and there are a lot, I mean, let's face it, that's the conventional wisdom in Washington and, uh, you know, even among experts, uh, U.S., uh, experts on china and east asian security you know i would say the majority well most of them sort of let's say are are unclear on what they really would advise you know if the missiles started flying but but many of them uh support this and i find that they uh, they um they're really reaching for um they can't alight on a persuasive argument why u.s national security is threatened by by uh you know a chinese um attack on Taiwan. So they, you know, reaching for any argument, they say, well, you know, the global economy would be, you know, uh, devastated most primarily because of these uh, chip factories would be under threat and they would, you know, possibly come under Chinese control. But I, I don't buy any of that. I mean, it's, you know, first of all, okay, so, um, you know, automobile prices might spike for a couple of months because they had trouble getting, you know, more of these chips. Uh, that they need to to make uh, the parts. But I mean, really, are we going to risk World War Three and the, the lives of 100,000 or more uh, American servicemen because we uh, were worried about car prices increasing uh, for a time? Uh, you know, I just I don't buy it. I also think, you know, it's interesting. This kind of we're, we're trying to leverage high tech against China, for sure. Um, no doubt that's a, becoming a key part of our strategy. Um, it may you know, ultimately delay, uh, if you will, China's economic ascendance. But my sense is that the, the you know, the, this, uh, whatever, the, the train has left the station a long time ago. In other words, if we had done this 20 years ago, it might have been uh, possibly had a major effect. But I, I don't really see a major effect. I think China is way too far along. You know, they've anticipated this for years. Uh, the Chinese companies are well you know, well on their way to building, you know, first class uh, chips. I mean, if, if anything, this could have the effect as it has in the uh, domain of space. For example, space, we really tried about about a decade ago, we basically tried to cut off all relationship with Chinese uh, space. We've cut them out of the International Space Station and all the rest. And so our, our idea was we they would not become a major space power because we would we could prevent that by isolating them and, and not cooperating with them at all. But it's quite the opposite. China surged ahead in space. Uh, they are uh, on the cutting edge. You know, uh, uh, you know, they have their moon project. And, and part of it is because, you know, not only are we 
less aware of what they're doing because we're not collaborating with them. But we also um, see that they, you know, when a country goes its own way, meaning they they have to make everything themselves, that it actually, you know, sometimes it, it helps their effort. <laughs> they're less dependent uh, and they develop these, um, uh, you know, very robust uh, uh institutions and, and uh, mechanisms and you know i think by any measure china is a first class uh, spacefaring power yeah at the libertarian institute we publish books real good ones so far we've got will griggs no quarter sheldon richmond's coming to palestine and what social animals owe to each other and four of mine fool's errand enough already the great ron paul and my brand new one hotter than the sun Time to abolish nuclear weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey guys, I have some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Oh, man. So there's so much to go back over here, and we're not even... Uh you know, a quarter of the way through what we got to eventually recap. But let's recap a couple of things. First of all, Taiwan being an island, as opposed to, say, Ukraine, where there's roads where you can just roll right in. And if the ground is dry enough, just drive right in, you know, uh, with or without roadways. Um, and now, you know, we both made a big deal about how far away this is from the United States and how close it is to China and all that. But it's still like 90 miles of water. They still have to you know, um, wage a uh, amphibious and airborne invasion of the island, which seems like would be, you know, much more difficult than just rolling right into the Donbass, for example, something like that. Um, but then again, of course, it makes it much more difficult for the United States to intervene um, as well. But so I wonder if you think that that's much of a deterrent to China, that they would have to know that they're going to lose X many tens or or more thousands of guys trying to do this. Yeah, and I mean, let's stay to the outset. I mean, this probably would look something like Normandy. Um, I, I think, you know, that doesn't phase China. I think that, you know, I mean, what, what Eisenhower and company could put together over the course of a couple of years in in London, while while the U.S. was busy fighting on on all these fronts and and things, uh, and you know I, I you know it's true China doesn't have a lot of experience in these things, particularly not in a in a modern sense and and little combat experience. Uh, nevertheless, I I think this is quite um, you know quite something they could realize now. Um, in the report, the CSIS report, they make some interesting comments here about the fact that you know the difference is because this is an island versus say the ukraine scenario but but one critical absolutely critical takeaway and here i agree with the writers of the report they said this is not ukraine this is not a situation where gosh uh you can continue you know you you can basically um 
take a hands off and continue to send supplies. That's, you know, seems absolutely not the case. They say, you know, more or less no, uh, no aircraft or U.S. aircraft or ships are going to reach this island uh, in the case of a Taiwan scenario. It will be totally, uh, you know, subsumed under China's sort of, um, you know, missile, if you will, um, uh, umbrella to the point that, you know, they describe, for example, just again, one scenario that they look into, they said that in a couple of iterations, U.S. players in the game tried to send in a few uh, battalions of U.S. troops, Marines and, and soldiers. And they said these, these troops are destroyed in the air. They don't even get to the, you know, they don't even land on Taiwan. They said a couple of thousand U.S. troops killed when their transport aircraft are shot down. And that's the situation. So what, what the gamers say here is like, look, this is fundamentally different than Ukraine. Um, everything Taiwan needs in that first month or first few months has to be on the island already. And that, you know, may imply to you some kind of level of un, unreality because, you know, I was just in Taiwan and I can tell you, you know, it's uh, very far from, you know, seriously preparing. Uh, you don't get it, really a sense of urgency there at all. Uh, is it not a nation in arms um, at all? Well, and and, you're not just a tourist having breakfast and whatever. You're palling around with their defense establishment while you're there, I presume, right? Uh, not too much, honestly. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to walk the beaches. I wanted to, I drove around the entirety of the island. Okay. You weren't uh, meeting you with know, them? I, and... my, I covered about 800 miles driving around Taiwan. <laughs> I saw three people in uniform. I mean, that should give you a sense. I, I looked at some uh, beach area, likely landing areas in the Northeast, for example. Uh, I saw almost zero uh Taiwan military activity at all. I remember I visited one one uh, little fishing port, which I think would be a very likely target. Uh, and it it had it had one little police boat, but that police boat was on stilts in the harbor, you know, being worked on. So uh, so anyway, I, I guess what I'm this is a long way of saying, um, you know, you the kind that unlike Ukraine, which can be kind of pumped up and then continuously uh, topped off, if you will, with more high Mars missiles, more stingers, more javelins. And and that effort has been somewhat successful, right? I mean, they did stop the, uh, uh, you know, they stopped the Russians from, from taking over the entire country. Fair enough. But in Taiwan, uh, I think that is very, very unlikely. So there I agree with the these gamers. But where they're really wrong about the... Um, you know, the, the the amphibious invasion. And here, this is a very critical point. Um, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to explain a little bit, which is they make some uh, convenient um, numerical assumptions. They basically state that, uh, you know, that uh, China has about, has less than 100 total amphibious vessels, amphibious attack vessels. Uh, and uh, I think the number is something like, uh, I'd have to check back, but it, it, the number is something like, you know, 80 or something like that. And basically they say the key to the whole scenario is for the United States to destroy, you know, most of these 80 vessels. And that would cause, uh, sorry about that, uh, and that that would cause um, the invasion to fail. I think this is a very fundamental mistake that they've made in the analysis. Uh, why? Because you know, China is not, uh, for a variety of reasons, has not 
is not going about this the way we would go about it, you know, with beautifully decked out ships that are, you know, look exactly like the ones that uh, landed in Normandy or something like that. No, uh, the way China would undertake this invasion is by employing its civilian fleet, okay, which amounts to tens of thousands of vessels. I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of vessels, if you include fishing boats, which I do think would be part of this. You know, China has the biggest merchant marine, the biggest fishing fleet, the biggest coast guard. They would all be thrown into the mix. What we, you would probably see is an armada out there of, of like I said, of tens of thousands of, of ships of various kinds. And they would mostly use, you know, low tech kind of solutions here, like small boats uh, with outboard motors. Uh, and, and anyway, this completely... Um, goes against the logic in the report here, which is that, oh, you're going to have 85, you know, specialized amphibious attack ships, and we just have to sink those. That's just not how this would look. And I, I'm shocked that the uh, gamers seem to have overlooked um, the very real possibility of China employing its its maritime civilian power. And after all, if they had read the DOD report carefully from 2022, this is the annual DOD report, that a major theme of the DOD report was this civil military fusion, right? We know for a fact that China's merchant fleet is training for this day. Not only that, the ships have been built to spec. That is, the they built their merchant fleet in a way that it is ready for war, that it, you know, it has the kind of specs that they can bring tanks aboard, they can bring troops aboard, they can bring these small boats that they'll deploy. So, you know, to my mind, this really undermines this idea that, wow, it's, you know, gosh, they have 90 miles of ocean to cross. Can China do it? I think they absolutely can, uh, for sure. And moreover, my, I will say, having walked the ground on a lot of these beaches, um, you know, I was not impressed at all with with uh, Taiwan's uh, defensive works. Uh, and, um, you know, the idea that a lot of these beaches are mm, impassable, I, I think is also quite wrong. I mean, there's this kind of idea that you know, it's all Taiwan's coast is all cliffs. Um, it's not what I saw. And moreover, the cliffs that such as they do exist are mostly on the eastern side, uh, which is somewhat relevant, but not, uh, you know, to me, uh, I'm absolutely sure that China will have exquisite intelligence. This is the kind of intelligence that would blow Eisenhower's mind, right? He was the, you know, planning D-Day and looking for intelligence on the beaches and so forth. And you know, uh, you know, what if Eisenhower could use drones and could use uh, Google Earth uh, constantly updated with photos from beaches, you know, day to day on what Taiwan beaches look like? That's the kind of intelligence that China has. You know, by the way, they have 24 hour uh, real time, you know, satellite surveillance. Uh, so, you know, they know exactly what they're doing and where they're going. And how much force to put at it, and and they have they have the requisite capabilities. That's I think what's not widely realized. Um, and you said on the show before too, I think Lyle, that you know they can just lay siege to the place and and say, look, don't make us kill you, dude. But we're just taking our sovereignty back here now, and you're gonna have a new mayor. How do you like that? And they could maybe get. I'm elaborating a little bit on what you said, but you said they could just lay siege without attacking and force the issue politically from there that'd be i guess the lightest touch scenario huh yeah you know well there are actually lighter touch scenarios even um you know where where they and they've already kind of experimented with this right i mean in august uh, 2022 during the pelosi visit we had the movement of a lot of chinese forces you know missiles arced over the island i think uh something like 250 different 
Chinese combat aircraft crossed the median line during that month. So, it, you know, that was a fairly severe. Uh, uh, but but yeah, that's a lot lighter than say a blockade. Now I I should mention about blockade because this this game does not cover blockade. Um, but you're right. I mean that's a whole different conversation that probably should be had, uh, and that is a very real possibility. In fact, I would say the balance. Most U.S. specialists um, on this matter believe that a blockade is much more likely than a uh, all-out invasion. I'm kind of on the fence. Right. Because blockade, the problem with blockade, of course, is that it um, is very uncertain and it could take a lot of time. And, you know, who knows, maybe the Taiwanese could hold out for months or even years uh, and, and you know, it could sort of be just twisting in the wind. Agree that that would be, you know, substantially lower risk. And I do think, you know, China has, uh, you know, absolutely has the requisite capabilities to accomplish a blockade. And moreover, you know, Taiwan, I, I don't, you know, again, you don't see a lot of evidence of them storing uh, fuel, food. Uh, you know, by the way, the island is not self-sufficient uh, food-wise, or uh, and certainly quite vulnerable from an energy point of view. Uh, and it, you know, that scenario would put the impetus on the United States to try to uh, uh, break the blockade, right? Uh, sort of like Berlin airlift style. So, I mean, that's a very live scenario, and then you know, both sides would be. Uh, facing these enormous risks, you know, I imagine Chinese planners have gamed that all out, you know, and, and are ready for that sort of set of escalatory maneuvers. But from the Chinese point of view, the invasion in some ways looks much more attractive. Why? Because uh, while it is more risky, um, it, you know, they, there you get the shock value, right? Uh, they may think they can deter the United States, uh, I, I, they are building up their nuclear forces, for example. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if on uh, if on uh, day one of this scenario, however it unfolds, that you see a grand parade down the you know streets of Beijing with a new you know a much more robust uh, nuclear uh, missile force than than we had even conceived. I think it is possible that China's nuclear forces are bigger than we than we know, uh, and. Um, you know, in general, the blockade, I think, um, uh, you know, the, you know, it is, I think, um, it, it, so, so the advantage of, of amphibious invasion then would be that, that they can close the deal. And indeed, you know, one of the conclusions I, I quite agree with in the CSIS report, they say, if nobody comes to Taiwan's aid, you know, they think the China could probably conquer Taiwan in about two months. And uh, that's, you know, I concur with that um, evaluation. If it's if they do a blockade, Scott, then they have to. Um, it's a negotiated solution, right? It means, OK, let's drop some terms. Let's see, you know, what Taiwan agrees with. Um, that's a risky approach, right? Um, you know, and, and China is likely not to get all it wants in that uh, situation. Um, Right. So so it's it's a highly risky um, set of maneuvers there. Um, so um, I would if I had to guess, I, I think the invasion scenario is is somewhat more attractive to to. Uh, not necessarily to China's 
top leaders. They're the decision makers. But to the PLA, um, you know, I think they all want to be involved in this. They want, you know, their new uh, generation of martyrs uh, and they want to crush, you know, what they see as, uh, you know, a bunch of separatists uh, to achieve, you know, full unification. They don't want to negotiate, you know, they want to deliver the terms. Well, just how uh, hell bent do you think uh, they one are? One more I thing think... here, though, uh, is that I, I, you know, it, I just, from looking at this from Taiwan's point of view, and I imagine some of your listeners probably are on Taiwan or whatever, but I mean, this should all look really terrible and suggest the idea that if they want a negotiated solution to this, then, then now is the time. And I, by the way, I, you know, there are real political diplomatic solutions to this, uh, all these quandaries. Anyway, go ahead, Scott. Yeah. Well, so I wonder about um, what you think and how you assess the Chinese government's determination to take Taiwan back and sooner, not later. I think you told me on the show before that you were just counting ships and you were saying, look, they're building a capability to retake Taiwan, you know, so therefore that's what they're doing. And that, you know, you fight like you train and all that. Right. So, but what else do you have to go on there that says that this is a real worry that they would do this sooner than later? Because there are others who say that it just there's so many counter incentives to them doing this when, after yeah, all, they're it, getting along fine anyway. There's billions of dollars worth of trade and travel back and forth. And they're, you know, de facto right. pals, if not good buddies politically, you know, they're getting along fine as it is and, you know, et cetera, like that. Yeah, there are a lot of counter incentives, as you say, a lot. And um, and to my estimate, we ought to be, you know, um, somewhat in the business of increasing those. And one of them is, you know, by the way, this whole, you know, American debate about decoupling, you know, trying to get the Chinese out of our uh, economy and, and cut all these links with China uh, on the commercial side. I, I think that has the perverse... Uh, um, effect of, of, you know, telling the Chinese that, that, uh, gosh, you know, I mean, in other words, we're losing economic leverage, right? If we go to war with each other, all those ties will be broken, right? Yeah. But if hey, we I don't know if them, you know this one, Law, but uh, Frederick Bastiat, the great uh, French economist of the 19th century, said, if goods do not cross borders, armies will. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. And, and so, in a way, we should be doing the opposite. We should be pulling the Chinese close. We should be integrating with their companies and so forth. And if we do that, I mean, obviously, carefully, judiciously, you know, I get it. You have to do your due diligence here. I do think there are a lot of commercial areas we should, we can and should and have, you know, cooperated in. You know, by the way, Boeing has gotten incredibly rich selling aircraft to China and setting up all their airports and all the rest of it. But the point is, if you're well integrated with them, again, you, you disincentivize uh, this war. You, you make it clear that we, we, we are cooperating with China. We want to build a more prosperous future together. Uh, but, but here by decoupling like crazy and, and de-risking, you know, that's the new way of putting it. Uh, what you're basically doing is telling the Chinese, um, go ahead with your war because uh, we're, you know, the, the links are already cut. Right. right. We, we've already lost all our, our leverage there. But I mean, there's so much more that can be done. And by the way, Taiwan, I think, should have the same approach. That is, they should say to the Chinese. Um, and, and by the way, there was some, you know, just a few months ago, one of the former presidents of Taiwan went to the mainland. It was a very this is my Joe. He was president of Taiwan. And by the way, when he was president, uh, the cross strait 
tensions went way down because he more or less agreed to cooperate with China. So, um, and pursue a lot of joint initiatives with China. Uh, and that was very successful. He met with Xi Jinping. He had a good meeting with him. This was in December 2015. But if if the Taiwanese, you know, make an effort to try to get along, you know, as it were, feel feel Beijing's pain and, and you know, try to check a few of their boxes, not all, but a few, uh, I think that would go a long way toward, you know, cr again, creating these disincentives. By the way, Taiwanese have been extremely active on the mainland in, in, in fueling uh, the, the uh, you know, this Chinese economic colossus. A lot of China's best companies and most successful have, you know, if you look at the at their roots, they, they have some relationship to Taiwan. It's that. Why did that happen? It's it's uh, it's actually not that mysterious. Right. I mean, Taiwan, you know, maintain their sort of capitalistic uh, uh, globalist uh, market wise posture and, and Chinese uh, benefit enormously. But they want to continue to benefit from that. Right. They don't want to close off from the world. So so if we you know, if the Taiwanese are clever, they'll continue to integrate. And so will we and and really lower the chances of of war in that way. It's, it's a yeah. wise pot. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and. You know, I understand there's so much, you know, and well-deserved backlash against globalization because so much of it is the globalization of government and the globalization of regulation and corruption and war and all of this sick stuff. You know, you wouldn't want Bill Clinton and W. Bush and Barack Obama to be in charge of your government, you know, during. But at the same time. That's really an entirely separate issue from the globalization of business and capital and trade and production and labor and wealth and prosperity. And that's what we want to encourage. And those two things shouldn't have to go together that, oh, well, no, you have to kill four million Arabs and Afghans if you want to have free trade with China because those things all go in a package together somehow. That's only because that's what the Republicans and Democrats say, not because it has to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Scott, so much of this is the sort of, you know, the war machine, the military industrial complex that Eisenhower spoke of. I mean, this is just, you know, boy, do they love China. I mean, they like Russia a lot these days, too, but they love China because you can never have enough. Right. If you're going to try to defend Taiwan, you know, they, they, you, you could spend you could double or triple our defense budget. and You probably still wouldn't get there. By the way, a couple more points from this report, though, that I think are that if you don't mind. Uh, oh, man, I got some, too, but do go okay, on. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I, there's two areas here which I think, you know, on the military, uh, in the aspects of military strategy that I think are worth discussing. One is that, um, uh, you know, I, I I commend the the authors of the report because they, they basically did um, do some due diligence and investigated the submarine side of this a bit more. And I've been for years saying that we we are not, really understanding the full dimensions of how U.S. submarines would fight. And, you know, uh, I think people have erroneously suggested that submarines basically solve this whole problem, that all we need are, you know, 30 uh, nuclear attack submarines out there. They can go right into the strait. They can destroy any amphibious invasion. And that's the end of it. I, I have strongly disagreed with that. Um, for for several reasons. But in this report, they're substantially more realistic than previous reports. And they realized that we would lose a lot of submarines if this war came about. Uh, again, they worst case that we might lose 15 submarines. That's, uh, you know, about a third of our uh, nuclear 
submarine force. That would be devastating. I think it could actually be worse, unfortunately. But the main reason, and they, they do underline this in the report, and I commend them on this, they say that submarines, the problem with submarines is that the weapons loadout, the number of torpedoes and, and missiles they carry is, is fairly small. And then they have to go all the way back to port, and these locations are generally known, uh, to, to load out new munitions. So they basically say you cannot win this war with submarines. They're, they're, they are quite correct, and I've been saying that for many years. And, and, one, by the and way, by the way, I'm, I'm completely ignorant about this, but the question came up in my mind. They cannot be resupplied on the high seas by surface ships. It has to be at port back at Guam or Honolulu or something? Uh, excellent question. And, yeah, I mean, there are some fine details here that really – you know, can be probed. And believe me, many U.S. Navy strategists have been mulling this over. How can we get those submarines supplied? By the way, the German submarine force in World War II had this huge problem. They were having a field day, you know, shooting up uh, U.S. ships all over the East Coast, including near, near where I live in Rhode Island. But um, but actually, you know, so they were extremely effective against our ships uh, generally, but they re kept running out of torpedoes. And so the Germans came up with this very elaborate method to actually send what they called milk cows, these giant supply submarines over. And then they would try to somehow move torpedoes from one submarine to another, which proved to be very difficult. Uh, but so in a way, we have a, a similar problem. It could even be worse. Uh, but um, yes, we've thought about it. Yes, we do have, you know, submarine tenders. But, you know, the truth is the Chinese will, you know, the Chinese are onto this. They know that we have this problem and surely they will put the, the largest possible effort to try to uh, destroy these uh, any facilities that we uh, create for this purpose and, and the ships that carry these munitions, highly prized munitions, torpedoes. And by the way, the, the report, I think, uh, rightly, again, points out the fact that torpedoes sometimes don't work and that torpedoes are extremely expensive and that uh, and that China will target our uh, depots that have torpedoes. By the way, the report also, they recommend that we prepare to load out torpedoes from like, you know, various civilian ports. By the way, where are those civilian ports? You know, on these little Pacific islands or pl obscure places off of Japan, for example. Okay, but like you realize, you know, when you're starting to load torpedoes in fishing in fishing village X, that fishing village X has now a big target on it. Uh, so, um, you know, in effect, they're putting civilians in danger by advising them to do this kind of thing. But um, I would just also emphasize, you know, China's come a long way in in the way that they uh, fight against submarines. Uh, they really have put a huge effort now into hunting uh, submarines. It's not that they're on par with us, but they are they are they have, you know, the technologies and the requisite capabilities to you know move in that direction. Like, for instance, with a, a very successful um, light frigate, you know, Corvette program. Again, they have the largest Coast Guard in this world. I, I can document with evidence that this Coast Guard is ready to join the fight. And traditionally, Coast Guard elements are uh, critical. Uh, but here's the biggest thing, uh, actually. Probably China would close the straits with sea mines, and that would be almost impenetrable for submarines. So we couldn't even get our submarines into the straits to try to sink this invasion fleet. And by the way, the water, extremely shallow in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, very shallow water, not good for nuclear submarine operations. That, that They become much more vulnerable. So the waters around Taiwan really do not you know, support the idea that submarines 
could be uh, a major factor. That's um, interesting. I'd never heard that discussed before, and I guess I always just pictured deep ocean there. So how shallow oh, are we talking? Uh, it's about 100 meters, which is oh, just so in not, other words, not yeah, that so is in my mind's eye, when you said enough. when you said close it with mines, I'm thinking, well, geez, you could just go under them or something. But you're saying no, they could really mine the place from the seabed oh, to the surface. Pull up. Now the east side is much deeper, and there, you know, it's true. Submarines probably could play a bigger role on the east side. But you know, the Chinese have thought a lot about this. But yes, I believe they would absolutely close the straits, and that's one <laughs> reason I think our submarine losses could be even worse than what they project in this report. But again, they, they wisely showed that submarines actually are not the key to this, even though many have portrayed it in a kind of, yeah. you know, what, uh, hunt for Red October kind of uh, surge of enthusiasm. I mean, you know, look, nuclear submarines is part of the, our military that I do fully support. They are, you know, the most, you know, lethal and cost effective uh, force for our Navy, but they are not decisive here. Now, what is decisive? They claim, the authors of this claim, that bombers are actually what we need to invest in very heavily. And here, again, I disagree strongly. I think this is a big mistake in this report. Uh, we can talk about that more, but, uh, you know, I don't want to. Yeah, let's put uh, that off for a second because um, I'm, I'm taking a note because uh, I do want to talk about that. Uh, in fact, I was supposed to take this note earlier and I forgot. So, uh I'm glad you reminded me. But first, I want to talk about these ships because, and this goes back to the question of nuclear war here, because I'm picturing Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or, for that matter, Robert F. Kennedy or Marco Rubio or anybody else sitting in that chair having to decide what to do after we lose two or three or four or more aircraft carriers to the bottom of the Pacific full of thousands of sailors. I think, what, minimum seven, as many as 14,000 sailors on one of those things? Um, I think it's more like 5,000, but I, but in the whole carrier group, you're right. Where did I get that high-end number? Sorry about that. Go ahead. It is that larger. And, and by the way, I just want to say, in the they projected... Again, I think it could be worse than this. They projected worst case, we lose four carriers. Uh, but they said in a typical scenario, usually within the first week, we lose one to two aircraft carriers. They right. said, so, so, so that is the average, you know, if you will. And if people go look at it, by the way, again, sorry to interrupt, but um, it, it's called uh, the first battle of the next war, war gaming, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. It's at CSIS.org. And there's a video at the top where the guy gives an overview. And he says in that short YouTube that, yeah, in their scenario, I guess they ran it 24 times over and over again, but I guess it's sort of standard that they lose one or two carriers, huh? Yeah, and and I mean, I think, you know, uh, it's, again, having, I, I worked for two decades for the U.S. Navy, so, uh, you know, this, I, I uh, you know, this, this physically hurts me to imagine, uh, and by the way, I've, I've, thought a few times that if if a carrier is damaged and you know they these are very hard to sink so it might well be damaged and be just sitting there you know you know it can't operate it loses its combat effectiveness mm -hmm. but it's sitting there floating you know imagine those guys out there and of of course you know how our military is we we're going to rescue them right so we probably send out half the US navy to rescue this carrier well that of course becomes a huge target and mm -hmm. believe me the chinese are ready to use that against us yeah I actually did read a thing about how they tried to sink one of their old carriers and it just took a week or two hitting the damn thing. They couldn't sink it. And they finally had yeah. to just put bombs on board to get rid of it. 
Right. These carriers, they're hard to sink, very hard to sink, but they're easy to put out of action. Uh-huh. You may need a minor hit to take, you know, to put a hole in the deck and that makes them inoperable. Well, so, so I mean, let me ask you about this because long, for a long time been a very poor investment for the U.S. Navy, I mm-hmm. advocate. But but you also raised the point of um, what would our decision makers do? And I do want to come back. To oh, wait, yeah. Too. No, put that off for a second, because I want to get to how these ships would get sunk too for a minute here and then. Yeah, we'll get to Marco, President Rubio in a minute. But um, you guys know that I consider the Defend the Guard movement led by the combat vets at BringOurTroopsHome.us and DefendTheGuard.us to be the most important thing happening in American politics today. Simply put, this law would nullify the empire by preventing the state governors from handing their National Guard troops over to the president for foreign combat without an official declaration of war from the Congress. We've made great progress getting it out of committee and even past the state Senate in Arizona. Help support Bring Our Troops Home and Defend the Guard at bringourtroopshome.us and defendtheguard.us. And their director of field operations, Diego Rivera, teaches a political leadership class that is the most effective training like it anywhere. He's still a soldier, only now his mission is peace. So heads up all you anti-war vets, we've got a mission for you. Find out all about their upcoming training sessions and help support at bringourtroopshome.us and defendtheguard.us. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org. I'm the director. Then we've got Sheldon Richmond, Kyle Anzalone, Keith Knight, Lori Calhoun, Jim Bovard, Connor Freeman, Will Porter, Patrick McFarlane, and Tommy Salmons on our staff, writing and podcasting. And we've also got a ton of other great writers, too like Walter Block, Richard Booth, Boss Spleet, Kim Robinson, and William Van Wagenen. We've published eight books so far, including my latest, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and Keith Knight's new Voluntarist Handbook. And we've got quite a few more great ones coming soon. Check out libertarianinstitute.org books. It's a whole new era. We libertarians don't have the power, but we do have enough influence to try to lead the left and the right. To make things right, join us at libertarianinstitute.org. So I read this thing years back, so I forget all the details, but there was something like the Starburst or the Sunkist or some kind of candy or drink named missile that the Israelis had given American blueprints to the Chinese or sold them for at a premium uh, to the Chinese. And it was said that these supersonic sea skimming missiles had a long enough range that they could just take out our carriers at a range, you know, further than the range of our F-18s. So, in other words, rendering them obsolete, whether you take them out or not, they can't get close enough to launch their planes to even matter in the fight, essentially. Um, And then, wait, there's a second part of that question, which is, I read about how, well, of course, ballistic missiles used to be a lot more difficult to steer uh, at a small target like a aircraft carrier, even, at sea. But nowadays... Um, not so much. And so, uh, they could, and there's essentially no defense. There's some machine gun defense and so forth against, um, lateral incoming missiles, but not against ballistic missiles falling on your head. And so that essentially, I think it was the war nerd, John Dolan was saying that just renders the fleet obsolete that they can't defend against ballistic missiles. They can't get within range of supersonic sea skimming missiles in the hands of the Chinese. And so that's it. There goes your battle right there. Yeah. And I mean, look, uh, I, 
you know, again, I worked for the Navy for 20 years. I wish I could say you're wrong here, but I think you're mostly right. Uh, and by the way, here's what's really devastating. Even the people at CSIS, the authors of this report, First Battle, uh, if you look at the details, they admit, and they say this several times, that the surface fleet in particular is extremely vulnerable. And then at one point in the report, they conclude that in their scenario, that more or less every major U.S. surface vessel in the Western Pacific might be destroyed in this war. And it's likely, as you said, through a combination of uh, ballistic missiles targeting, which which and, and now this has gone even a step further than than last time. Most people checked in on it. Now, you know, China seems to be ramping up its uh, hypersonic glide vehicle uh, weapon, the DF-17, uh, which I think is, is uh, you know, it's confirmed is also target ships. Uh, you know, this is even harder to shoot down uh, because it skips off the atmosphere, <clears throat> but then throw in a combination of very lethal anti-ship cruise missiles, by the way, superior to our uh, anti-ship cruise missiles. This is the YJ-12 and YJ-18, which, as you pointed out, have very long range. Uh, coming from a variety of different vectors, uh, you know, and that's just, uh, th these are shot, you know, it can be launched by their, um, by, by uh, you know, their bombers or, or you know, fighter attack aircraft, uh, by their submarines, you know, by, by so many different elements, and then throw in mines and torpedoes too, and, and you just have a, uh, a situation where basically no U.S. surface vessels can get anywhere near uh, to the island. And, and you know, the CSIS report more or less says this, you know, they admit this. And that's why, you know, they retreat to this kind of honestly a somewhat bizarre position where they're like, look, we don't want any forces forward. Um, you know, they actually say at one point, the more air forces we flood into the bases like Guam and they all get destroyed. So he's actually like says we don't want to put forces forward. I, you know, I more or less agree with that, you know. Um, nor do we want to put surface forces forward. So they say, well, we've got to put it all in on bombers, you know, which I believe is rather bizarre. I mean, it's yeah. almost like a, a Dr. Strangelove moment. <laughs> you know, if you remember those lumbering B-52s, uh, is that really, you really think that that, you know, I... I I read a thing, Lyle, where it's it was <laughs> Michelle Flournoy, who was the big champion of the Afghan surge and was the deputy secretary of defense for policy there and could have been the secretary of defense under Obama. But she turned it down because uh, she wanted to be the secretary of defense under Hillary Clinton. Haha. <laughs> but anyway, she said, OK, yes, they can sink our entire Navy. But that's why we should build a whole bunch of B-1 bombers. And I don't think she said B-21s, the new ones. I think she just yeah. said we need a bunch of B-1s and we ought to be able, the goal should be we can sink their entire Navy in 72 hours. And then we don't even need to engage with them with our Navy. We can keep our Navy safe for just laundering money purposes and not ever use it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, if we go to the bomber issue just quickly, I... You know, I really think it's rather a harebrained uh, argument. And by the way, just to show you how harebrained this is, um, uh, the, the CSIS authors, um, they, they agree that we don't have nearly enough bombers to do this, nor do we have enough of the munitions that would the bombers would launch. Uh, and therefore, they there is a project underway where they literally launch missiles from out the back of a cargo plane. In other words, you like take a C-17 transport, you throw a couple missiles in the back 
and then you launch it with a parachute at the back and that <laughs> is supposed to you know save the day or somehow um you know if that sounds really ridiculous to you it is ridiculous well so okay so we were talking about but, but, this but with... i could take let me take the bomber argument a bit further oh go ahead well, wait, yeah no stick to stick with the dragon thing for a second there so we were talking about this with kyle anzalone on the show uh last week and then the idea was that by doing this it meant that they could essentially turn every c-130 into a bomber multiplying their fleet by huge numbers of times and so forth so tell us specifically why that's so harebrained to do well i mean it's uh you, you know I, I mean look every for every uh well let's begin at the beginning here these missiles right um they're coming down with very predictable trajectory a vector if you will you know the chinese know where they're coming from uh, they know where they're intended to hit okay so you know for one they're going to have you know good point defenses right i mean they can shoot these missiles down these missiles uh from everything i can tell they are subsonic okay most of the chinese missiles these days or many of them are are supersonic you know those are hard to shoot down these subsonic missiles uh i'm thinking again coming down a predictable trajectory and traveling you know over a very long distance uh i think they're going to be relatively easy to shoot down uh even you know chinese aircraft could shoot them down but they should have uh i think not too much difficulty so the you know the idea that you're going to show up in this uh you know somewhere around you know, just west of Guam and start launching, you know, giant volleys of missiles. And by the way, how do you target a missile from that far away? And especially if the Chinese fleet, like I said, amounts to, you know, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 ships out there, you think that this missile can discriminate? I think they'll be lucky if they hit any ship, much less the ship that they intended to ship hit. And moreover, even if they did all hit, they probably wouldn't be successful. And this is discussed quite a bit in the report that, you know, the only missile they think has even a close to a chance is something called the LRASM, long range attack ship or something, munition, LRASM. And they say if in the best case scenario in 2026, we might have 500 of these missiles. So, you know, the idea that we're going to have, you know, 5,000 of these sitting around ready to go and that they're all going to hit. I mean, it's just completely fanciful. And then I haven't even discussed the idea that, gosh, the Chinese might want to destroy all these aircraft, right? Um, and yes, they can increasingly reach out. I mean, they have the fighter attack aircraft that has actually much longer range than ours do. They can fly out a thousand miles into the Pacific and go after these bombers. I'm not saying, you know, they would take losses trying to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, we would try to contest. But uh, you think our bombers are invulnerable? No, they're not. And moreover, this is a kind of one of these wrinkles at the end of the study where they're like, well, right now, China doesn't really have the ability to attack our bomber bases in Hawaii and Alaska, places like that. And uh, they, they, they agree that China can pretty much flatten Guam. That they agree on. And, you know, I, I'm glad that they're candid about that. Um, but okay. So now we have bombers flying out of Alaska and, and Hawaii, Diego Garcia, or, you know, the Australia, you know, these very distant locations, um, by the way, those bombers require, uh, aerial refueling. And yes, the Chinese are absolutely going to go after the aerial refuelers because they know that that's a, you know, soft rib, if you will. But, um, uh, 
Do you think that they might want to strike those bases in Alaska, Hawaii, and Australia? Yes. You know, so this is going to be a huge priority for Chinese military development going forward. And they already have, you know, the uh, submarine launched cruise missiles, which, you know, I would think you would get dozens of uh, cruise missile volleys being shot into uh, both Alaska and Hawaii, potentially in the first few days of this conflict and put those air bases out of action. You think those bombers are sheltered in any way? No, they're all just sitting out there on the tarmac. So, well, and Lal, I mean, I don't you know, know so how they, easy it is. This, to this may not. Sorry, one last point. Like, you know, and, and so so the, the CSIS gamers say, well, you know, now we have to start hardening Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, you know, I mean, this game just goes on and on and on, but it becomes, you know, even more and more uh, uh, insane. The costs go spiraling up and up and up. Uh, so, look, we, we should look, we should have robust defenses in the Pacific. Absolutely. We should defend Alaska and Hawaii. No question about it. But we should defend them against attack, not so that we can uh, try this harebrained scheme with Taiwan, which it really is harebrained. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I don't know how easy it is to swap out the warheads, but if they have three-stage missiles that can reach out and touch me in Austin, Texas, then that means that they could hit Alaska if they, you know, they don't have to put a nuke on it. They could put a, I don't know how many hundred-pound bomb on one of those, right? Yeah, and by the way, for my friends in Texas, they are, you know, thinking hard about how to put hurt onto Texas. You know, look, that we can put hurt onto Sichuan and Hunan, then they want the same capability. And actually, I was tweeting about this the other day, and I am tweeting every day at, at Leo Goldstein. You, you know, what I was saying was China really badly wants, I think, to have a more or less permanent submarine presence in the Atlantic. Why? Well, because they want to be able to range uh, Texas florida norfolk uh with these uh you know sea launched cruise missiles uh and you know have a kind of parallel escalation so if we're gonna strike into targets in china then then we are gonna they're gonna hit targets in uh, texas louisiana and and all the rest and and that you know is a new reality that should be dawning on people uh but that you know that's where we're headed if we're gonna have a cold war with china you know we may not like uh where this is going. But by the way, a major conclusion of the CSIS study, and here I think they're quite correct, is that they say, look, and and we should come back to this point of what what does this mean for decision makers? Um, But but they say, look, you got to realize the days when we could just fire cruise missiles or whatever into China en masse, they say are, are, and, and, you know, you even fly aircraft over China are are over. He said, we should plan to fight this war with Taiwan. That's what they advise without striking the mainland. I mean, think about that. So that's a major change. They're saying we might try to defend Taiwan, but we should do this without striking the mainland generally, or if we have to, just the mainland ports. Now, look, there's a kernel of wisdom there. I mean, I don't think this war should be fought at all, but if it is fought, yes, it has to be fought extremely carefully, right? We don't want escalations. So, uh, I'm, you know, there are parts of this report that are that are important to. Mm-hmm. Well, and and look, I mean, they start off going, yeah, we'd lose hundreds of planes and dozens of scores of ships and including carriers and things. And I don't know if they would, you know, break a carrier in half and sink it. But um, anything like, uh, you know, sinking scores of American ships, what would any American president do? They would think about themselves. Right. That's a 
public choice theory. There is no national interest. This is just the interests of the idiot individuals making the decisions. And any president would have to beat his chest and start dropping nukes if we lost half our Navy, like you're talking about here, or anything oh, right. like and that. There is, there is this very dark scenario, which I don't see any American strategist talking. They're all talking about, would China resort to nukes? Would they? Well, it's a good question. And if they were really losing, they probably would. I think the Americans are but more I dangerous, Law. That's right. If the Americans are really losing, I'll tell you, if we lose four carriers and half our Navy, absolutely nukes will be on the table big time. In fact, that's the uh, that's how the, the war ends in this book by Admiral Stavridis, this 2034. People ought to read that. I don't I don't agree with a lot of in, what's in the book, but that is right. It could end with a um, nuclear use. But uh, one thing I want to highlight here and here, you know, here I'm quite critical of the this study because in a way, you know, I think they've kind of packaged this up really nicely and try to sell it to the American public here as like, hey, you know, we probably could do this, you know, so we should just get ready for it. And if you do, if you do X, Y, and Z, as we advise, we will, you know, we can do this without bankrupting ourselves and without, you know, causing, you know, horrible war. Um, and they say, they say, well, we have no opinion on whether Taiwan should be defended or not. We don't render an opinion on that. We're just saying what it would take. Um, so that, you know, that's an interesting way to put it. But, you know, again, if you read the fine print, you realize they actually are setting us up for for this war. Uh, but because one of the things they say is, and this, by the way, pertains to Japan, too, but they say, if the U.S. president hesitates at all, then we lose. They say, so they're kind of setting it up so that in the first, you know, hours of this operation, the president has to go all in. That's more or less what they advise in the report. Any delay will allow China to win. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, I, I'm very worried that, you know, if this goes off and, and as we've discussed, it could go off in any number of forms. You know, all out invasion is just one possibility, uh, you know, that the president, uh, I'm afraid, would not be acquainted with all the real costs here, would not be able to think this out and would be told he basically had an hour to decide the fate of the world. Uh, and, and, you know, emotion might take over and, and, you know, we might be on a glide path there to, uh, you know, all out war, all out, you know, nuclear war is possible. Uh, I think, I, I don't think that's that likely, but we may, you know, again, have this uh, horrible moment where we discover, um, what a bad position this is. You know, I've said this again and again, this is the, this is the wrong place to draw the red line. It's, it's such unfavorable, uh, situation for us forces. We're asking them to do the impossible here. So, so I don't think a U.S. president should be in that position. He should have uh, weeks and even months to figure this out. And, uh, like I said, there are many ways to approach this, which do not involve, uh, you know, World War Three, uh, a, a calm, cooler reaction would realize that Taiwan is not crucial to U.S. national security. Uh, and even if we could agree that Japan and Philippines are, if not crucial, but but important, uh, they these areas can be defended and defended quite easily and defended without bankrupting ourselves. And moreover, China has no intention of invading either Philippines or Japan. So uh, whereas they clearly do, and they're very open about it, they clearly have an intent to, uh, you know, to, um, you know, defeat and, and if you will, conquer or control Taiwan because yeah. they view it as province. So it's a very stark difference. And people on the other side, you know, Bridge Colby and people like that who argue for the maximalist, you know, defense of Taiwan, they always say, well, this is just a stepping stone toward taking over the Pacific and the whole world. 
you know, I don't agree with that at all. I think that's very, very uh, far off. Yeah. Now, the lesson of World War II is that everyone is Hitler. You might have thought that Hitler was an exception in some ways, but no, everyone is Hitler and everyone must be dealt with in the same way that Hitler should have been dealt with preemptive war. Right. And and here, you know, the looking at Ukraine is important, too, because, you know, again, you know this very well, Scott, is, you know, people are saying, well, you know, if we don't stop Putin in Ukraine, he'll roll all the way, you know, to the English Channel. Really? You really think that? I mean, you know, I don't even think he would, uh, you know, he's humbled, humiliated at this point. I don't even think he would dare uh, attack the Baltics. But there, you know, the, the argument that Italy, Germany and France are somehow under threat is completely ridiculous. And that is the same circumstance in the Pacific where Taiwan, yes, Taiwan is under threat. They have some hard decisions to make and they should opt for compromise. Uh, but no, Japan is not under threat. Philippines is not under threat. Korea is South Korea is not under threat. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have to recognize that and, and look at this objectively. Yeah. All right. I'm going to let you go after one more here, which is about the use of nukes. There's this thing they call it the nuclear taboo. Sure, Harry Truman nuked a couple of cities one time. But uh, other than that, though, no one would ever use nukes again. In fact, I read an article in The Atlantic today about how people have Putin all wrong. There's this weird analogy about a story from his childhood with a cornered rat going after him and how he's the cornered rat and you better not corner him. But really, he's the frightened boy. He'll run away. And so we should not worry, says The Atlantic, that he might use nukes if we push him too far. Um, because, geez, come on, Lyle, nuclear war, it's unthinkable, man. Um, And yet, so you were at the Navy War College there and you dealt with these guys constantly, um, I guess, advising them. Right. And it's their job to use these things if it comes down to it. Right. So I wonder if you can kind of give us insight into that. I've heard it said that to a general or an admiral, it's just the next biggest bomb on the shelf. And if the last one didn't work, you resort to this one to them. I mean, think about a taboo. What is a taboo? You can break one of those. No problem. And they will and they would. And so to people who think it's unthinkable, they're wrong. But then other people say, no way, it's just unthinkable because everybody knows once you start using them, cities start going up and nobody wants to do that. Not the worst leader of the worst country would ever do such a thing ever again. And so they can't all be right. So what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that analysis you described from the Atlantic is uh, is uh, ridiculous. I mean, it's childish. It's, it's uh, extremely naive. Uh, you know, and I, I, I think this, whoever uh, wrote this, like, you know, um, somehow is not acquainted with all the incredible risk taking that took place and, and just how close we were uh, in so many circumstances, including on the U.S. side, by the way, uh, you know, many circumstances where use of nuclear weapons, you know, even at Dien Bien Phu, you know, of all places, you know, in the Korean War, again and again, they thought very carefully and, and you know, they were a bit more or less uh, set to use them. So, uh uh, yeah, this is extremely reckless. I don't know, you know, I don't know what they're thinking. I was at Naval War College. We gamed out uh, a Ukraine war. This is unclassified uh, war game seminar discussion about Russian nuclear use. And we, we actually gamed out, you know, war over Ukraine and, you know, more or less universally agreed that if Putin was losing in Ukraine, that yes, he would resort to nuclear use. Uh, you know, not strategic weapons, but tactical weapons. 
Uh, and, you know, I, I stand by that analysis. Uh, and then it wasn't just me. Um, it's in the report, actually. It's, I think it's even published online. Uh, so um, I think we were right then. And, and, you know, I'll just pass this on, too. I, I was on a, uh, recently on a track two call with some leading uh, experts from China who are experts on Russia. I mean, this fellow who made the comment, I won't name any names, but he follows Russia as closely or more closely than I do. And, and he probably has more insider interactions than I do. And this Chinese said, if you think that Putin and, and the uh, Russian military leaders fear using nuclear weapons, you are dead wrong. They're, they are ready to use them. Um, and I think here he meant tactical nukes. And I've heard this many times from Chinese too, that they they fear that China, that Russia has been already very close to using nuclear weapons. So, and then turn this back on to Taiwan. And, you know, I've seen more and more signs, including, you know, writing openly in PLA Daily, you know, Jeff on Jumbao, they say, I have an article from 2019 that says, oh, looks like the US is reactivating their their tactical nuclear weapons uh, program that they are, you know, putting these aboard submarines. These are aimed at us most probably. And yes, that will quote, cause other countries to consider deploying tactical nuclear weapons. And, and although, you know, we don't have uh, firm evidence that China is deploying these, I think um, the logic is, is most likely they are. And they're, you know, I, I, when I was in China in, uh, Back in April, you know, I sat around with some of their foremost nuclear strategists. And when I said, you know, are you thinking hard about what limited war, limited nuclear war with the United States? And they said, yes, we are thinking about that, you know, which is which really stressed me out because, you know, in previous all the previous years, I had such conversations. They'd say, oh, no, no, China would never do anything like that. And it could never possibly you know hmm. there could never be a nuclear war between the u.s and china you know they would be very uh how to put it you know they would say such thinking is ridiculous but no in this case they were like yes absolutely we are thinking about that you know yeah. with a straight face and i had another you know i asked about china's nuclear buildup to another senior strategist in shanghai and a very influential thinker and he looks at me and says without missing a beat he says we are preparing for the worst case on taiwan all right. Now, so let me ask you about this. And this goes back a couple of years to Trump tearing up the INF Treaty. And it was said, I forget if I ever knew your take on this. Um, it was said that the Russians were violating the treaty because they had made a missile with too long of a range. And they're supposed to not make any medium range nuclear missiles other than, I guess, sea launch, but no land launched medium range missiles. And instead of saying, hey, we demand more and better inspections and whatever regime you're supposed to do to enforce treaties, they said, aha, we're tearing up the treaty. And they tore it up. And this was Reagan's great achievement from 87 that kept medium range nuclear missiles, I guess all nuclear missiles, out of Europe um, other than at sea um, offshore. Uh, you know, ever since that time. And I forget now where I first learned this, but I, I've learned it a few different places since then anyway. I'd like to give proper credit if I can. But anyway, um, the idea was that we don't want these for Europe at all, and neither do the Russians. The Americans and the Russians both want them for China. 
And the Russians and the Chinese are getting along pretty well, but still they got a big Siberia to defend there. And that this is for their frontier and that then the Americans want to put them in the Philippines. So you're talking about the Chinese saying to you, literally, personally, recently, yep, we're thinking about having a nuclear war with you. My question is, do you think that might be because they tore up the INF Treaty and they're openly talking about putting medium-range nuclear missiles in the Philippines for pointing at China with? Yes, yes. Uh, these are, you know, I monitored what the Chinese were saying during this uh, period when we were scrapping all these treaties. And, and yeah, they... You know, it's often said, well, China has no interest in arms control, but that's not true. They've taken a big interest in arms control, including like uh, they signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And and there really are a lot of people in China, strategists who are uh, strongly feel that arms control is crucial. And, you know, if if, if for any reason they're leery about it, it's because they realize that our uh, nuclear arsenal is, you know, whatever, um, you know, whatever, seven or eight times what or more uh, larger than the Chinese arsenal. Uh, fair enough. But they look, they they absolutely were very upset. Uh, I know that China was the kind of main impetus for why we left uh, this treaty regime. As you said, we kind of used a technical excuse with getting out of the INF with the Russians. But everybody knows that that was uh, what we were trying to say. Was By the we way, ready. I'm sorry. Can you help me with my footnotes for that? I need that what's that for for yeah like how you know that for sure so well what sorry what that that the the re- that the reason they tore up the treaty was cuz they wanted them for china not for each other in europe all right well and... if you go back to that period i guess that was sort of 2018 2019 that the, 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 yeah, you know, the, there were many statements, uh, many statements coming out of the administration um uh, uh, I think John Bolton was was saying this every few few days. At a, or, uh, maybe that's an exaggeration, but he he was saying very frequently. I think he even flew to Moscow to explain this at one point. Uh, that that oh you know China uh, really the Russians should be worried about China and that they also should not you know like this treaty anymore. Uh, we we all need to get out of it. So so yeah, there were plenty of informal signals uh, that China and you know strategists across the spectrum in. Uh, who look at the Pacific were saying, oh, gosh, you know, we have to have this buildup of intermediate range uh, um, missiles to counter China since China has, uh, you know, has quite a few of these uh, shorter range missiles. So I think this was uh, this is opening up Pandora's box. And was which, I right, by the way, Lyle, about why Russia wanted them to was for lining their frontier? Yeah, I think Russia wanted to stay in the treaty, um, you know, and then they were reasonably pleased with the fact that they could wield, you know, a fair amount of nuclear striking power from from the oceans or from, you know, and, and the various fleets. Uh, like you said, they weren't constrained by this treaty. So I, I'm sure that Russia wanted to stay in the, the treaty and that they would have stayed in if we had given them an opportunity. Like you said, we kind of just gave them short notice and said, we're out of here. And that was it. And, and by the way, I, I would just say that that applied to many of these treaties, you know, over time, you know, going all the way back to ABM, uh, you know, trashing the ABM treaty under Bush. But I mean, you know, open skies, 
uh, all these other ones, uh, you know, it's it's really terrible. Uh, these treaties, um, you know, I don't think arms control solves everything, but it is very important. It's a lot of it is through the process, but I mean, it's, you know, building trust and preventing, you know, these incredibly costly arms races. So I would argue we need much more arms control, not less. We should get back into these regimes like open skies. Uh, by the way, I, I've encountered in China, uh, some specialists saying, hey, why can't we have a conventional forces uh, treaty the way you, you had that in Europe after the Cold War? You know, so many tanks here, so many artillery here. And why can't we have that between the U.S. and China for the Asia Pacific so that we prevent this, you know, kind of huge arms race that's starting to unfold, you know, that's going in all these dangerous directions like uh, artificial intelligence and all that. I mean, so we need a lot more arms control, not less and more. And that we need more engagement, too, across the board. Yep. All right. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time again on the show. I'll always learn so much and it terrifies the hell out of me. <laughs> well, I always like talking with you, Scott. So hope we'll connect again soon. OK, really appreciate it. Thanks again. Bye bye. All right, you guys, that is Lyle Goldstein, and he is at Defense Priorities, and uh, we are talking about this one at CSIS, which he's critiquing here. He wasn't part of it. The first battle of the next war. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.